great thing about the Olympics, it's truly an amateur sport. You can go straight into it like I did. And when I talk to kids about running for office, I tell them it's the same way. You don't have to have come up in a political dynasty or have all these connections with the party. You can jump into it and make a difference if you have a good message and a good plan to knock doors for those who vote. Uh, they're very similar in that way. And there you know, we go, Scott. That's, that's the ending right there. I mean, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. That was good. That was good. All right, let's hit some music, and then we'll actually talk about politics. I, I could talk about Winter Olympics for another I mean, 45 yes. minutes. It's, it's clearly the best Olympics. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you for being with us again this week. Uh, Scott, we're in our new studio again. Things are coming along. We are. This is... Uh... Do you think we'll? Is there going to be another global pandemic next week? Don't. This is the second time. Don't our, you dare! The, the last time we had our second day in a new studio, the world shut down. That's, so. that's true. Uh, I'm just going to ride this one out here in the studio. I think I put up some uh, some sound dampening panels here, and it's it's not all the way finished, but it's coming along. Nice, nice progress. Well, this is our uh, second episode with a guest in the studio as well. You weren't here for the last episode. With uh, Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne. That's right. Did you listen to it? I haven't yet. It's on my list. Uh-huh. I was uh, I was getting my brother-in-law married. So. Well, that's that's a worthy cause. Yeah. Congrats to to them. Yeah. They, Tim, uh, Tim. Yeah. Tim. Tim and Rachel. Shout out to Tim and Rachel. They're uh, they're on their honeymoon in Mexico as we speak. Hey. All right. Well, hopefully it's warmer there than it is in most of the United States. Their pictures would indicate that is so. All right. Well, uh, our guest today is State Representative Mickey Dollins. Hello, sir. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of your new studio. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, uh, Representative Dollins, have you been on our show before? No, this is actually my first time. That's that's shocking. That's an oversight on our part. First time on the show, not the first time to listen to it. Oh, the long-time listener, first-time caller. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Thanks for for coming, man. We appreciate it. The fact fact that you listen and still agree to come, uh, I'll take that. It speaks uh, highly of him and lowly of us, I think. Um, Well, let's uh, maybe, in that case then, for listeners who somehow might not know about you in our state, give us a rundown of... Um, what district you represent, where that is in the city, um, a little bit about the district, some uh, fun facts, if you will, and uh, how long you've been in office, kind of all the your usual bio. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm Mickey Dollins, originally from Bartlesville. I represent South Oklahoma City now. I've um, going into my seventh year or fourth, uh, fourth term. And uh, before I was elected, I was a teacher at U.S. Grand High School, but uh, and love the love South Oklahoma City. We've got uh, a lot of great diversity, amazing restaurants. We are home to the oldest outdoor movie theater in Oklahoma called The Western. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to raise a family. Uh, I've got two young kids who will soon be in public schools. And uh, we just love going around the district to different parks on the weekends when the weather isn't 20 degrees. Right. <laughs> Do you enjoy being a state representative more than indoctrinating children with woke ideology? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, you know, church was a big part of life. No. <laughs> uh, so, no, I'm not a fan of indoctrinating uh, anyone. Um, I hope to help people think for themselves, <laughs> including my own children. But, uh, you know, growing up in, in small town Oklahoma, it, it is interesting, like the beliefs and uh, the culture that you grow up around. Um, I earned a football scholarship to Southern Methodist University in Dallas out of high school. Go Mustangs. Yeah, they just got in the Pac-12. So it's going to be interesting. So, I, I'll be honest. That is that is, that is a decision. That's Yeah, I would say we, <laughs> we don't talk about sports a lot on the show. And I think, Scott, you probably watch more sports than I do. That's but I'll be good. honest, like the realignment of college football has just taken the wind out of my sails. Like, and that, that's probably because I'm still old enough to remember the Southwest Conference, the Big Eight, yeah. Southwest Conference, the Big Eight, <laughs> and uh, everything since then has been a little, a little disappointing. Collegiate sports has changed so much. Not to change topics too much, but with the transfer portal and the NIL deals, oh, which I co-authored with Representative uh, Nichols a few years ago before the NCAA just threw their hands up and said, "Forget it, you do whatever you want." <laughs> right. uh, it, the landscape has changed a lot, but. Um, going to SMU from Bartlesville, going to live in Dallas from Bartlesville was eye-opening uh, in terms of opportunities and uh, expanding my mind and um, meeting new people and 
uh, rooming with people from India and all over the country and who I wasn't exposed to really growing yeah. up was was phenomenal. And uh, out of college, I majored in English with creative writing and uh, tried out for the NFL. Didn't make it, but that led to an opportunity to try out for the USA bobsledding team. So we don't have any bobsled tracks in Oklahoma. Had to live in Lake Placid, New York for a few years, and then we would travel to Park City, Utah, and then we'd go up to Canada and then over to Europe and uh, compete over there. And ended up coming back to Oklahoma and got a job as a roughneck on a drilling rig. So did a year and a half in the oil fields. And at that point, oil was really tanking. And the small operation I worked for uh, had to lay its rigs over and lay all of us off. Uh, I had a college degree to fall back on, but a lot of my colleagues, uh, my friends on the rig didn't. So they were kind of living or dying by the boom or bust of the oil fields. And at the time, I didn't you know, connect that to economic diversification or anything. I just knew that it didn't seem very fair that without a college degree or um, anything other than just life on the rig, the opportunities were very finite. And so I used my English degree to become a teacher, got a job at U.S. Grant High School, loved it so much. I bought a house down the road. And within about two years, the budget cuts happened. Yeah. Schools went to four-day school weeks. Teachers from across the state were let go. I was one of them. So with all of my opportunity of newfound time, I decided to knock doors and go door to door and talk to constituents and ask them what was important. And if they asked me, I told them why I, why I was running. But I wasn't connected to any type of, uh, I wasn't connected to the Democratic Party or didn't have any family and no political dynasties in my family. Just uh, finding out people who voted and then going to their doors, talking to them, and then representing them since 2016 has been the honor of my life. That's So a couple of things I want to add in here. One, listeners, if you caught all of Representative Dolan's LinkedIn bio there, we went through bobsled, teachers, roughneck, well, bobsled, roughneck, teacher, state representative. At the end of the show, uh, we'll play some outro music and do that thing, but stick around because we've got about five or six minutes of him talking about bobsledding that I know Scott and I got into. It's awesome. So just a little nugget to make you listen for the rest of the episode. It's at the end. Um, but to follow back, that's when we first met you, I guess, was in 2016 when Let's Fix This started. I mean, it was the same thing. It was that uh, extreme, well, bad fiscal policy that led to state budget cuts that led to my colleagues when I was working in public health losing their jobs or being furloughed and the the patients that I served um, at our HIV clinic being unable to access life-sustaining medications that made me tune in and be like, what the hell's going on? Like, why is it this way? And how are we going to fix it? And and I didn't knock doors, but I did invite people to go to the Capitol um, and really started then. And so I remember that I've been thinking about that a lot, I guess this week. I've been you know, kind of getting our office set up here and looking at old news clippings from 2016 and 2017 and remembering the political climate then and and what it was like for people like you, uh, Forrest Bennett, I think got elected in 2016 as well, right? There's right. this kind of a new class of, of freshmen. Cindy's first term as well? Representative mm-hmm. Munson or was she there before? She was there a year before. Yeah. One year before election. a special election. That was her first general yeah. election, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it was kind of a big, I think, year, especially for Oklahoma City young Democrats in particular that were getting elected. Um, and it's so interesting, right? We're now we're seven years since then, looking back at how much has changed in those seven years. For you, I don't, this is, you know, we'll kind of, I'm sure this conversation will meander around, but to, to scoot forward in the timeline seven years, what do you think has been the most significant change um, over over your tenure there in the legislature? You know, it's a great question. You, they say history repeats itself. And what led up to 2016 was decades of failed trickle-down economics. And we hit a tipping point where teachers did walkouts and you created Let's Fix This. And people were really engaged in, in getting government back on track to fund core services. So teachers and hospital patients and, and just across the board could hopefully get back to some uh, resemblance of normalcy. And we took some really hard votes to get revenue up. We uh, imposed a gross production tax on oil and gas. And, you know, those were very difficult times. But you fast forward to where we're at right now. Half of the legislature currently serving wasn't around seven years ago when those tough decisions were being made. And so they've almost forgotten how difficult that was. And now you're already starting to hear uh, 
agendas to tug, uh, cut income tax and um, you know, failed fiscal policy that got us into that place just ten, you know, seven years ago. And so the biggest change has been um, seeing it to be at the bottom of the barrel and then making those really tough votes and those really tough compromises to get state agencies back on track to fund government, at least get on the path forward. And now here we are in 2023, taking step backwards, making decisions that's going to put legislators in that exact same position we were in just seven years ago. Unfortunately, one of the things I don't like about term limits is that people forget about what happened when the times were tough. And then also they could look at just um, maybe a, a, a policy that could be pertinent to their next election and then say, hey, I don't have to deal with the repercussions or the unintended consequences of a failed fiscal policy because an entire new legislature will be in and it will be their problem. Yeah. And so to see us get on the uh, path toward recovery and now going back to it is a wild change that I didn't anticipate even four, three years ago. Yeah. Well, and it, and it seems like too, that we have, you know, we have people now that are in, that are in, in some cases, statewide elected office, but certainly in the legislature who, because of the, uh, they're, they're so bereft of experience, they there's, there's just a lot that they don't know. And in some cases they don't know what they don't know. Right. We hear a lot about like fraud, waste and abuse. Like, there's nothing left to cut in Oklahoma, right? Like they talk about cutting the income tax. And then if you have a revenue failure, you know, it's a 75% threshold to try and raise taxes again, right? And so um, you will almost, not necessarily because you guys were able to do it a few years ago, but raising new revenue is so difficult that you're almost inevitably put in this position of cutting services. And like, I, I don't want a bloated, like, wasteful government any more than the next guy, right? Like, I don't want government wasting our money, right? Like, just like I don't want, I don't want, an, I, I don't want to waste my own money, right? Like, I don't want my, I don't want my employer to waste, to waste its money. But, like, in Oklahoma state government, what else is there to get rid of, right? Now, there are people who want to get rid of, like, public schools, apparently. And there are people who want, but, like, there's not, the, the fat is gone. Yeah. Right, like there's not any fat left. It's a great point, Scott. And when you've cut the budget, the next thing you go after is what we're seeing is de democracy. Right. In this case, direct democracy that we're going to talk about, ballot initiatives, making that process harder, making it to where you have to um, pay a filing fee to put a state question on, increasing the threshold from a simple majority to an astounding 66%. Cutting the, uh, just processes in general that reflect a healthy democracy has seemed to be the next step in which they are um, touting this waste, fraud, and abuse, in which Oklahoma's election system uh, is one of the most safest and secure and efficient in the entire world. Yes. So they're just, you know, basically <clears throat> it's um, the yapping dog that finally catches the car and then doesn't know what to do. Right. Creates a new problem to be able to chase after a red meat issue, whether that be a socially divisive issue like attacking trans people or coming up with outrageous claims that the uh, ballot initiative is too easy in a state like Oklahoma, which is one of the most difficult states to accomplish getting uh, 170,000 signatures within a 90 day frame window is one of the most difficult processes across the country. And now that's being under attack right now as well. Why? Because the current people in power would much rather tell people what to do than be told what to do. And so when they are pushing their own agenda, whether that be vouchers, tax credits, ESAs, coupons for the rich, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> if the people are out there implementing their own will and taking matters into their own hands because they're fed up because those they've elected aren't doing their jobs, that's detracting away from the time and energy and resources that they're wanting to put into their own personal agendas. We've got to protect direct democracy, ballot initiatives. It's we're one of 26 states that even has the ability to do it. And we got to protect it and then leverage it going forward when it comes to incredibly important things that are impersonal to people like re restoring reproductive rights. Andy, I know you've worked really hard on creating an independent redistricting committee, getting rid of gerrymandering. For me, I would love to see ranked choice voting, all things that would only be possible through the ballot initiative, just like Medicaid. Um, Medicaid expansion, medical marijuana, criminal justice reforms would have never been touched by the Republican supermajority, but thankfully because of ballot initiatives and grassroots initiatives and Oklahomans, we now have those things that wouldn't have exist otherwise. And if I can chime in, something I want to point out for listeners who are, are probably, you know, 
value aligned with us if they're listening to our podcast, but ballot initiatives are for everyone, right? Regardless of your party affiliation of how conservative or liberal you are, this is the right of the people to petition their government. And there have been a number of state questions led by conservative groups. Um, they haven't all passed, but not, I mean, not all the you know left-leaning ones have passed either. It's, as you said, extraordinarily difficult. And I think there's a, I, I would say, a misguided perception that direct democracy is a tool of the left, which is not the case. Like if, if liberal causes are winning at the ballot, it's because voters want them, right? Like you have to get voters to approve it. And, and, well, and that's the that's the issue, right? Is I think one of the reasons that these things are under attack is because when when a ballot initiative like you know uh, medical marijuana or you know recreational marijuana, which we'll be voting on next week, or you know uh, expanded healthcare through through Medicaid expansion, when a ballot initiative like that passes, I think that strikes fear into the heart of some of our elected leaders because what that shows is I don't have the support that I think I do. Right. As an example, Governor Stitt would love to go out and say, I want all 77 counties. Right. So that must mean that everybody in Oklahoma supports me. I have this overwhelming mandate. And to be clear, the governor won by a, by a very healthy margin. So, like, I'm, I'm not here to say that it was like a, a, a closer election than it was. But when you see these ballot initiatives pass, even by 52, you know, 51 to 49, 52 to 48, even by close margins, that shows that. Um, that Oklahoma on some issues is not as conservative as the makeup of the legislature and the margin in the governor's race would make it seem. Right. And when that data point is out there, right, that makes it harder to advocate for an ultra conservative agenda. Well, right? It makes it harder to say, well, this is clearly what people want because they voted for me. Um, it's, I mean, it, the, the difference, right, is that these are issues and not candidates, right? And I think as we see across the country, we're divided on partisan lines, right, when it comes to, to individual candidates, like right. Representative Dollins or Governor right. State or whomever. But there's not a party for medical marijuana, right? There's no, not a party I mean, for Sooner Care. There's not a party. I mean, like, the, you, you can't go on the ballot. Like, when, when recreational marijuana is on the ballot next week, there will not be a, you can't, you won't be able to pick up that ballot and check the check vote for all the republicans or vote for all the democrats right there's not a straight party there's not a straight party ticket when you're voting on a policy right brings up a really interesting point you could qualify oklahoma as being the reddest state in the country based on the fact in 2016 and 2020 every single county went trump at the same time the people of oklahoma passed some of the most progressive ballot initiatives across the entire country as i said medical marijuana medicaid expansion criminal justice reform so that tells me that Oklahomans like democratic ideals, progressive ideas, but they just don't like the name Democrat. And a lot of that has to do with conditioning and things that they have heard in their communities, a lot of things that are false. That's why going back to campaigning in person is so important because once people are able to meet you in person or at least see you in a crowd in person, it breaks down those barriers of everything they've been told or fed on whether it be national television or something false that they have heard in their community that they weren't quite sure about. So I think that it, going forward, it's so important to connect with people in person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we're kind of getting we're getting we're getting into it before we get into it. So the, one of the bills we're talking about, right, is Senate Bill five eighteen, right? This is Senator Julie Daniels' bill, yep. right? Who's the House author? Does she have a House author? I mean, if she does, right? She has to. No, no, not until if it were to be. There's, not, there's not a house author yet. Not a house author yet. Mm -hmm. Who do we, do we have? Do we is there a suspicion who it would be? I wonder. No, mm -hmm. I'm mean, well, probably John Pfeiffer. He's run these type of bills in the past, so likely it could be him. Right. But. So do you, as you know, as peers, colleagues, right? Do you have like do you have you ever had a had a conversation with him about like this particular issue or with folks on the other side of the aisle who support these kinds of. Uh, bills that that limit the power of initiative petitions, and if and if you do or if you have, what is their reasoning? What's their justification? Well, anytime I am critical of a colleague, let's say on Twitter or something, I'll reach out and have a conversation with them in person. And so the last um, bill that I criticized publicly was Senator Warren Hamilton's bill that would increase the threshold from a simple majority to sixty six percent. 
And I called and asked what, what was the purpose behind this. And he said it's because rural Oklahoma has no representation in statewide elections. And then a week later, the gubernatorial race happened. And, of course, <laughs> rural Oklahoma <laughs> had a very strong voice in that particular race. So when he says that, I guess I'm curious, like, before we even get – when he says we rural Oklahoma has no representation in statewide elections, what is your response? Like, because, like, to me – that's like an asinine statement. Like that's a that's an to me that's an that's an absurd statement. What he means is that when these issues come to the forefront, most of the time the issue not I shouldn't say most of the time recently with issues like sooner care or marijuana, for instance, more urban more urban counties and urban districts have voted for those things than rural districts in lots of cases. So it's not that they don't have representation; it is that they lost. My, also, well, let's if I could answer the question, yeah, yeah. my response to the senator was a vote in Woodward is the same as a vote in Oklahoma City. A vote in Guyman is the same as a vote in Tulsa. And just because you don't like the outcome of one person, one vote, doesn't mean you can continue to move the goalposts. Right. And right? so what does he say when you say that? Like, what's his response to that? Uh, usually uh, pivoting to some other issue of waste, fraud, and abuse. Right. Like, it's not that... It's not that <laughs> it is that they don't it is and that's and the and your this was my suspicion and thank you for confirming it is that they don't like to lose they want to make it easier to win without getting as many votes or i should say they want to make it possible to win without getting as many votes and i want someone i want someone to say that well it's about power and control yeah if, right. if the current threshold was 66%, we wouldn't have medical marijuana. So tens of millions of dollars not in our coffers. We wouldn't have Medicaid expansion. So over 250,000 Oklahomans wouldn't have health insurance. Um, but we would have cockfighting because cockfighting only passed. Uh, people voted to ban cockfighting by only 56% in 2002. And so it wouldn't have met that 66% threshold, which, you know, the foundation of our democracy, one person, one vote would be jeopardized under this current law, which would effectively make it extremely difficult for any upcoming initi ballot initiatives to pass, which if you look at states across the country, um, they've used this very effectively to restore reproductive rights. And so when I look at these like In McCall's re-election, yeah, McCall's election reform package, I look at it as preemptive to be able to um, stall any future um, initiatives going forward to restore reproductive rights to end gerrymandering, which would give up a lot of their control to implement ranked choice voting, which surprisingly has a lot of bipartisan support. But yeah, going, when, going When you forward, said McCall's initiative, which one are you talking about? It was it was labeled, um, yeah, McCall's re-election uh, reforms. Yeah, like election reform yeah. and law. Remind me what all is in this package. Well, they're um, shell bills. Yeah. And oh, so okay. I got gotcha. They can be gotcha, plugged gotcha, gotcha. in and played so at any there's time. no language yet. Got it. Not yet. I... Just so listeners know, um, when we talk about counties, this well, listeners probably already know that this gets under this chaps my hide, as they say. Um, grinds your gears, grinds my gears, right? It, the population of the state 48% of all the people in the state live in just five counties, right? Oklahoma, Tulsa, Cleveland, Payne, and Comanche County accounts for 48%, so almost half the population in only five counties. That leaves 72 other counties, right? There are counties that have less than 5,000 people, and there's counties like Oklahoma County that have 750,000 people, right? right? And so I don't think it makes any sense for us to count counties, because no, it, those it, are arbitrary lines right. that have some historical relevance, but not when we're talking about votes, which right. is an individual thing. It is a way to try and create an electoral college or a senatorial-like election system right. where the 5,000 people in one county can overrule the 750,000 people mm -hmm. in another county. Because it's one county, one vote, instead of one person, one vote. Yes, that's the line. That's that's the line. Scott, did you know, I'm, I'm going to assume that Representative Dollins knew this, but you might not, that Oklahoma's state senate used to be, um, the districts were apportioned based on counties, not on people, up until hmm. the 60s, right? Until they were forced from a, a summary judgment that they had to change that to a one person, one vote or a, a, a district that were drawn to reflect the population rather than it used to be the cows. Yeah. What well, used to be in the dirt. It was like um, for the I forget the top 20 most populous counties each got one senator 
or something like that. And then they divided up the other counties between the rest of the Senate seats, something like that. So this was that's fascinating. And it was a summary judgment from what court? Um, I don't, not summary judgment, but it was after the in the 1968. What? Right. But one, was it, one was of it, our listeners will correct me on this. I'm sure um, when this issue came before the U.S. Supreme Court and. And so um, they said the Oklahoma Senate was unconstitutional. They no, they because challenged it because of that. Yeah, they there was a, a okay. there was a lawsuit here in the state to following make, that. To, 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 isn't the United States Senate also unconstitutional? That's a different ball game. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not because you want to file that lawsuit. I know an attorney. It is. It is. I mean, I mean, I I think not being a lawyer, the answer is because the Senate was created by the Constitution and is therefore right. not unconstitutional. Right. <laughs> um, so. What's the um, that's a that's the name of a West Wing episode? Um, something ergo Proctor Hawk? Oh, post hoc ergo Proctor Hawk. There you go. Yes. Um, yeah, Kirby. Yes, great episode. Episode three in the series, I think. Episode three, series one. Okay, next right. time I'm doing West Wing trivia night. You, you all are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're there. Free beer. Uh, yeah. But okay, so to, so I I tried to get us like zeroed in, and then we I didn't. So S five eighteen. This is Senator Daniel's bill. What this? What version of uh of uh, of um uh, uh state question reform is Senator Daniel's proposing with five eighteen? Uh, in, in terms of what are the components, what yes. would it do? Yes. Uh, one thing it would do is it would increase the challenge time from 10 days to 20 days. That's not such a big deal. Um, and then the other the other thing on that, what, remind me, Andy. The, the filing fee? Yeah, the filing fee, the $750 filing fee, That's which is arbitrary. And, There's not and, a filing fee right now. It's really just to, I believe, discourage those from um, wanting to have their voices heard. Right. I mean, anyone who can't afford the $750 filing fee is probably not going to have a legitimate campaign behind their state question anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it, I mean, to me, it's a, it's a government tax, right? Like it's an extra tax. Ooh, let's see. Let's say she's raising taxes. But that's right. Okay. She went, there you go. So $750 filing fee, challenge period from 10 to 20. What else? Um, I will chime in and say that it would also change the way that signatures are verified on the back end. Um, so listeners might remember that in 2020, the legislature approved a new uh, state question signature form, right? That is before, if you guys remember, like you just, it was just a sheet of paper and you sign, you had to write your name and address and very tiny and be legible across. Very tiny, but all capital letters. Right. Or it's going to get tossed. Yeah. And so they changed the form to be more like what, Scott, you would know this, like essentially a super bill, right? Like an insurance billing form yeah. where you have to write one letter in each little box because that form will then be scanned by a computer, like an optical character recognition scan, OCR, where it scans your handwriting and tries to like figure out what you said, right? So it's a way to digitize a, a, your signature line. And then they use that to match that to the voter file to verify that everyone who signed this form is indeed a registered voter in Oklahoma. Okay. The current system, um, so as, when they did this, you have to match three out of six data points. And, and it's like first name, last name, street number, city zip i forget what they are exactly and that matching is done by a computer um yes but obviously sometimes it's not going to get it right right like if you have poor penmanship <clears throat> as i do right? i don't know anything about poor penmanship. as a physician i'm sure you don't you're like a yeah my and, writing is perfectly legible but you might make a, a c that looks like an e <clears throat> right like a little extra loopy on the top there and the computer might be like ah, we're only like 30 percent sure here Let's get a human to chime in and tell us, right? And so in most cases, right, like you're going to be able to know. Like you'll look at it. Let's say it was Melson, but it looked like it was a C, and then it's like Melson. I'm going to make this easy. Let's say it was it's Melson, but it looked like Nelson. Okay. If you made your M. That never happens twice. (laughs) And, well, I would say that one. Someone might, if they don't know you, like Scott Nelson, oh, that's probably what it is. That seems reasonable. I went to high school with Scott Nelson, actually. In which case, that would get knocked out, right? Like, if the other data points didn't match for you, then your signature would be not validated and would not count, even though you were a supporter and you signed this petition. So, anyway, this is a long way to say 
that Senate Bill 518 changes it from three out of six data points to four out of five. I think they combine first and last name into one whole data point, which is problematic because your name is Andrew Moore, but you happen to have written Andy, then your name would be thrown out, right? Like that's my example. And so this makes it a higher threshold for verification. And we've only used this, this new system once, right? It was with the recreational state question 820 campaign. They're the only ones that have gone through it so far. And from what they have said, the process was was riddled with issues, right? Like the, even the human intervention was not stellar. They threw out all kinds of signatures that should have been valid. Thankfully, they collected enough so that there was enough to qualify for the ballot. But if it had been close or if it is more difficult, there's a very real chance that state questions could be thrown out. And as far as I know, we have never received from the vendor, the private company that's now contracted to do signature verification, they have not like shared their records to show us which ones they threw out and why. So there's no like audit trail there for the people. So <clears throat> I don't know if you know this, but contracting a private company to do something that the government used to do is always better and cheaper and more effective. <laughs> so just mm, especially FYI. if the FYI, that's that's best practice. But for first of all, um, second, so it's a sarcasm font, and even better if it's religious based. Yeah, absolutely. Right, it's, it's, or this one in this that's case, the, a pollster. That's right? the gold standard. A partisan pollster who's now doing signature verification, like a partisan political mercenary, if you will. Yeah. Um, but so devil's advocate, devil's advocate. So three out of six, that's fifty percent match versus four out of five, that's eighty percent match. Mm -hmm. Why isn't that better? Why is it like? Why is it not? an appropriate safeguard to require an 80% match instead of 50. How is that not going to more, how, how is that not going to improve? Like, why won't that improve the validity of, of, of signature collection? Um, because it is, well, a couple of reasons. I'll answer. We'll let Mickey chime in as well. It, but it was, I, it was for everybody. I assume, like, well, I don't assume. We know that it's voters that sign this, right? Like almost never are signatures not verified because someone's not a voter. They're almost always voters and they're thrown out because they wrote their old address and not their new address. They forgot that they're still registered their old address. Like there's all kinds of bogus reasons that signatures are deemed un invalid. And as we just explained, this will heighten the chances that signatures are ruled invalid as a a false negative, right? Like, or false, whichever direction it's false, it's false. That they, that you would be thrown out when you should be ruled in. And it just makes that harder. And that coupled with a lack of transparency and oversight by the legislature and the public um, means that we don't have any way to verify that their verification is actually doing it correctly. Private companies always do it correctly. There's never been a private company that did anything incorrectly. <laughs> and to Andy's point, I mean, if you've talked to people who have gone out and gathered signatures and have organized and strategized around a ballot initiative, there's so many hours and trainings and resources that go into that. And then to have a, a technical error throw out a, a an actual valid signature uh, defeats the whole purpose. I'm all for safe and secure elections. I think that's really a really good thing. But we can't take the chance of tossing out valid signatures because of a user error or technical error on behalf of the software. But even more concerning to me is just the $750 filing fee. And then in the case of Senator Warren's bill, increasing that threshold to 66%. That's what is really concerning to me going forward. And uh, I, I feel that uh, people, uh, if they feel like all the odds are stacked against them, they're less likely to take the initiative um, in exercising their power of direct democracy. Sure, it, sure. It, yeah, it doesn't make it impossible. It just makes it harder. And as we said at the beginning of this- It's already hard. Oklahoma has the highest number of signatures required in the shortest amount of time to collect them. So this is this is all policy and why why this seems like not great policy. Let's, let's talk the politics for a minute. So SB 815, Senator Hamilton's bill, Julie Daniels. Julie, uh, yeah, so SB five eighteen, but then also Hamilton has a bill Hamilton too. Hamilton has one too. So, are these going to get heard? Well, yeah, actually, Senate Bill five eighteen, Julie Daniels' bill was heard, and it uh, passed along party lines. The three Democrats in the committee voted against it. Uh, haven't 
heard it on the floor yet. Um, of course, we're working through all of our bills over in the House. Right. This is a Senate bill. And so it's why I'm not as well-versed on it right now, because we've been working through our own House bills. Sure. But, uh, no, it hasn't gotten a floor hearing yet, but I will not be surprised if it does pretty soon. And deadline is next week, right, or two weeks? Uh, actually, the deadline next week is just to have all House bills and Senate bills out of committee and ready for the floor work. Okay. And then after that, the next deadline will be three to four weeks after that. To have it past the Chamber of Origin. Correct. And then okay. we'll swap Chambers of Origin and so begin chain, that process so we, we, again. We've got three four, three, four weeks. Three to four weeks, I'd say. Until deadline to pass Chamber of Origin. Right. Okay. And then so, so let's say 518, uh, it gets heard on the floor of the Senate, it passes, come to the House, getting heard over there. Yeah, it would actually come to my committee in election, elections and ethics. Yeah. In which case I would get to bring up a lot of questions that we've actually discussed right, right here. And then um, also, of course, debate against cause, it. Because I feel like many of these, there have been, a, there've been a, uh, a, a number of these in the last few years. Thus far, other than the one Andy mentioned in 2020 that changed the, the form, I don't think any of them have passed. Right. So most of them, that, right. most of the changes that they could enact, like raising the, the threshold for passage, right, the number of the 66%, the, all of those things have to go to the ballot for a vote of the people in order to pass. And when anything like that has gone to the ballot in the past, mm -hmm. voters have rejected it. Because right. voters don't want an infringement on our right to petition our government. Right. But have they even have these bills even passed the legislature to be put on the ballot recently? Not in the last couple of years, no. 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 So I guess my question is, is there a is there do you as as a member, do you feel like there is more of an appetite in the legislature now to let these things get through and go to the ballot than there have been the last few years? Oh, most definitely. And it's, uh, you know, if there's one GOP-controlled state in the country that does something, you can be assured that the next GOP-controlled state will try it too. And to Andy's point, there most recently two states have tried this, where they sent it to the vote of the people and asked the people to vote away their own power. In, in Arkansas, it was Proposition 2, and it failed miserably. Now, in Arizona, the same thing came up, and the people voted for it. So it just depends on the messaging. Um, but no, with um, people taking matters into their own hands. So the ballot initiative primarily helps the those uh, who are not in power. So the GOP used the ballot initiatives quite a bit when Democrats had control uh, with the right to work and banning gay marriage. And they used it as tools to turn out to get people to the polls and vote. And now that the point where they have total control and they can pretty much push through any agenda they want, they want to take away that power of the people. But I wouldn't be um, so confident to say that if it went to the vote of the people that they wouldn't at this point vote away their own power. But that is where us as who have platforms, especially elected officials and people on podcasts, um, need to speak this and, and tell people like what's at stake and how much more difficult that would be going forward if you were to have an increased threshold or have a increased filing fee or have even less days to collect signatures or have it broken down by um, congressional districts or counties. There's a whole bunch of very creative ways in which they're trying to minimize people's power and ability to affect change in their own democracy. It's, I appreciate that you said elected officials or people with podcasts. As if those are the two constituents. Because we're the same. We've got a lot of power. I do. I just remember that I uh, pulled this data from the Secretary of State's website uh, several months ago, um, a couple of years ago, I guess. So it's a little bit out of date. So I only have the. So there's been now. I mean, state question eight twenty is on the ballot, right? So I have the first eight hundred and fifteen state questions. So since statehood, there's been. Well, roughly 820 something now. There's a couple others that have been proposed. Only six initiative, like uh, only six initiative petitions, have passed with more than 66 percent of the vote. There's been 419 proposed. Only six of those passed. Um, most don't ever make it on the ballot, right? So, in I mean, overall, um, the there's been. And I'll update this and send it to you in case you're interested, but. As, so this is as of, I think, 2020, right? There was there have been 419 um, initiative petitions. There had been 343 legislatively referred state questions, right? So from the legislature to the ballot, um, you know, almost all of those actually appeared on the ballot, 95% um, of them, because the legislature has a much easier path, right? They just pass it, and then it goes on the ballot. Um, but for the initiative petitions, 
I mean, only about 88 um, have actually appeared on the ballot. So only 20% ever make it to the ballot. And of those, um, only 28% total passed. So like wow. a very, I mean, it is a steep curve for the number that get on there. It's so hard to get on the ballot. It's so hard yeah. to win. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think when you see this, that like since statehood, if we had a 66% threshold, only six would have ever passed. We wouldn't have ever done anything. Right. We wouldn't, our state would be fundamentally different in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And I would like to expand on what you just said there for people listening at home and who are maybe a little confused of the process. Uh, by far, the easiest way to get a state question on the ballot is through the legislature, and it doesn't even require the signature of the governor. So when you hear HJR or SJR, it stands for House Joint Resolution, Senate Joint Resolution. And if it passes the House and Senate, it goes straight to the election. Now, the governor can choose when it's going to be heard, but it has to be at least before or on the general election. Whenever you're doing it the grassroots way, it's so much more expensive and time-consuming. Typically, you're having to train volunteers to go out and gather signatures. In many cases, you're paying 3 to $5, sometimes more, per signature to, to make sure you meet that threshold, especially when you know there's going to be a handful of your valid signatures thrown out. And it can cost over a million dollars easily. And so when we have an opportunity to get something through the legislature, that would be the best way to do it uh, to, save, to save time and money. But um, like, as we've seen in these past three initiatives that we just talked about that have made so much change in Oklahoma, uh, those have all been through that uh, traditional signature gathering process and getting it onto the ballot that way, the hard way. Sure. So, Rep, while we've got you here, um, because you are a former educator, your teacher, um, the McCall Education Plan, thoughts? Oh, my gosh, yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) I, I... I would, debated, you, would you like more whiskey? You know, I, I opened up my debate against that bill with just being amazed at the mental jujitsu that was displayed on the floor to justify passing a voucher bill disguised as a tax credit. Uh, you can call it an education savings account, tax credit, like I said, coupon for the rich. At the end of the day, you have to acknowledge it's diverting $300 million into uh, private and religious schools um, via... A, a tax coupon, a tax credit uh, that's going to primarily be used by parents who are already sending their children to private schools. 100% support parents sending their kids to private schools. Just don't expect the government to pay for it. Sure. And and also, is there any private school in Oklahoma that $5,000 will cover the tuition? There's a couple, but not in Oklahoma City. In Oklahoma City, um, you're going to find the cheapest is Mount St. Mary's. It's about 10500 a year. So it doesn't even cover half the tuition. Yeah. And um, you better have transportation yeah. to, your, to your private school. You better, you know, not so, have a disability. That, so this is a tax credit for people who are already paying tuition to Mount St. Mary's, Cassidy, Heritage Hall, all, all the private schools. This is a tax credit for the benefit of people who are already paying those fees or have the cash to pay for it if they can get $5,000 worth of help. Bingo. And then there's nothing in the bill that prevents private schools from raising tuition by $5,000 once this bill is passed. And it was admitted and acknowledged by the author that the, the most the most of the kids that are going to use this are already in private school. So it was, in one sense, uh, messaged as we're giving kids and failing zip codes an opportunity to go to private school. And then on the floor, we hear something completely different. Like in Arizona, 80% of the parents utilized a tax credit to this effect, Um, their children were already in private school. And then for the 20% who do get accepted, it doesn't guarantee them a seat in the classroom. If you don't have transportation, you've had past behavioral issues, um, if you, you know, have a disability, the private schools can shut it down for any reason. And then there's no accountability attached. There's no transparency. It's $300 million that could be used to invest in the 1,720 public schools that we have to ensure that 90% of the kids in this state have every opportunity that they can get in order to succeed and reach their full potential. How, do, how are they also getting around what seems like, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, I, I asked one about this, it seems like there's an issue with, you know, you've got a school district that's got, you know, what, what's told, TPS has like 45,000 kids or something, right? And then you got a school district in rural Oklahoma that's got 500 kids, they both get $2 million, mm-hmm. right? Like, how is that... That seems unconstitutional, right? <laughs> like, how are they? Seems unfair, at the very least, right? Yeah, how, how, so, how are they? How are? I mean, 
how is this? It's anything? one person, one vote, not one person, one dollar. Right? How is nice? How is how are they? How are they just? I mean, because to me, from the outside looking in, opposition to vouchers, at least in the in recent years, has come largely from rural districts, right? How is this not just buying off rural districts by saying we're going to give all the districts money, and if you're a rural district, you're going to get a lot more money per pupil than an urban district? The question, the question you're raising, why, how is this constitutional? Apply could be applied to about 25 percent of the bills that we hear, right? Johnny and did. that's why so many end up in the Supreme Court and oftentimes overturned. Uh, I am excited that. Uh, A.G. Gintner Drummond is starting to oh, reopen some of these cases. I know th- yeah. there was a he's case that, uh, yeah, he's he's he stated an opinion that a Catholic uh, charter school can't receive uh, public appropriations, and I agree with him on that. And so, to your point, um, raising that question, as Andy said, is certainly unfair. But uh, what does it look like when in litigation? Um, it looks like something that probably the A.G. would have to look into. Someone in the higher courts would have to maybe perhaps make an opinion on. Sure. Yeah, he, uh, not just this week, Scott. Uh, he's, he's making waves. He really is. Um, I think we should reach out and see if we can get him on the show. You know, we, we, we interviewed A.G. Hunter. We did. We did. Um, and let me um, let me make a call. Let me, <laughs> Do you I'll, know a guy? I know a guy. Let me make a call and see if yeah. we could. Uh, we'll, we'll go there. We'll go back channels and see if yeah. we could make that happen because that would be awesome. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Even on um, another good but less highly rated Oklahoma Politics Podcast, uh, KG, or no, KO Issues. Does Mickey, do you know that you're on the highest rated political podcast in Oklahoma? Oh, okay, there we go. I'm not right? surprised. Right? I, looked, I checked it just the other day. That's still? Still, yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we have uh, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We from, could really suck on some other platform. I don't know. but <laughs> from bo- Both listeners gave us five stars. That's Thanks, right. Guys. Thank you. Um, and uh, one of them's 12. So, yeah. Um, well, next time I see Sean Ashley with Capital Insider, I'll be sure to rub that in his face. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, Dick, Dick Pryor and I serve on a board together. He's a good guy. Yeah. Um, I, th- I, w- I think they script theirs. I feel like Sean uh, just reads his like daily update or weekly yeah. update anyway, which this- is probably a good way to do it. Sure. I'm a fan of this week in politics with uh, Ryan, Ryan Kiesel. Kiesel. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. So I saw, you know, Ryan lives down the street from me, and we were both at the same event the other day. And um, someone's like, "Heard you on the radio?" Or "Heard you on the?" I sent your podcast to somebody, and I said, "That's the second best politi- political podcast in the state." Now, and, are you are you uh, qualifying that based off of five star ratings or views? Uh, listens. The, well, I don't, I'm sure we have less listens because they're on the radio, <laughs> so I can't say that. But we have more. We have more ratings. It's starting to sound Adam. like a yeah. Stitt's top ten propaganda. <laughs> uh, top ten is a talking point. That's not a, a aspirational. Top, top ten is aspirational. Best in the eyes of our mothers. Yeah, and so There's a lot of spin going on. That's all we have here. Uh, <laughs> between between him and Walters, I have a headache every day. Uh. Yeah, that's he, disappointing. Having, like I said, two young children about to go into public school, being a former public school teacher, and then hearing these just weekly shenanigans, latest one being taken down all of the photos in the hallway is a distraction. I mean, it's not just pissed off uh, legis- uh, Democratic legislators. <laughs> McBride is on a war path. Republicans are fed up as well. They're just like, this well, is getting old and it's got to stop. It's like, he, here's the thing. And I mean, maybe, and you know what? Maybe maybe he does the hell. Maybe, you know what? Why don't we ask Ryan Walters if he wants to come on the show? Um, You'll like, have to film in his car. <laughs> right. We'll have to sit in the back seat like children. Um, I would do that in right? a heartbeat. <laughs> right. Like and maybe maybe he doesn't maybe maybe he doesn't care I assume that's the answer but like do you want to be taken seriously in this job or not right and like I understand that you ran a campaign a lot of people on both sides of the aisles at every level level of government say a lot of shit in campaigns like I'm not like I'm not defending it I'm just saying that it happens but like you're in office now you're a statewide elected official you're running. I, I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest, state agencies. You have a huge budget. Which you said this week, the the Department of Education is the agency where woke goes to die. Yeah. I mean, shut the fuck up! Like, come on! <laughs> like, let's get like get like it is like you want congratulations. You won the election, despite all evidence like to the contrary. Like, you won the election. Now it's time to be a grown up, right? You have an agency with a budget in the billions of dollars. You serve hundreds of thousands of children across 77 counties in a large geographically, ideologically, and ethnically diverse state. Like, 
quit screwing around, right? I mean, like they changed, they updated like the agency. Um, I forget if it's a if the technical name is like bylaws or rules, but like administrative they, rules. Administrative rules. So they changed all. They removed all references to diversity, and they took out the word diversity or diverse and put in different. And then they took out all references to culture and put in environment. Like one, those four words, diversity and different don't mean the same. Diverse and different don't mean the same thing. Culture and environment don't mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like an anthropo- like an introduction to sociology or anthropology class could teach you that at community college. like Or a dictionary. Or a dictionary, <laughs> right? One, those don't mean the same thing. But two, like, if you're listening, Superintendent Walters, like, how like how petty are you, really? Like, I just, I mean, I, I can understand, like, I can sit down across the table from someone and argue vehemently about tax policy or even education policy and understand that we can have very different opinions, but both be serious people, mm-hmm. right? Like, but this 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 strikes me as not a serious person. Yeah, it's, it's just been the entire routine and pattern here. Now his uh, latest hit is to suggest that Oklahoma institutions of higher education, OSU, OU, he's suggesting that kids not even go to those schools anymore, and, which is just mind-boggling because there's so many proud graduates from institutions here in Oklahoma that people are, you know, he's got, he's offending a large portion of, of Oklahomans who voted for him, who are graduates of these uh, these colleges and universities. Um, you just got to ask yourself, when when is this campaign rhetoric going to stop and when are you going to actually going to present a plan that's not just coupons for the rich. What's I mean, that's the, the thing. Like, is this... I, and I don't, I've never met the man, so I don't know. Like, is this a case of believing your own bullshit? Is this, like... Like, I don't... I I don't get it. Like, I I thought... I mean, I knew he was going to have a policy agenda to which I would be diametrically opposed. But I thought once he got in office, he might act like an adult. But apparently... What's the line from Hamilton? Um... Winning is easy, young man. Governing's harder. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you have to have an interest in governing, which is the difference between that storyline and modern life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I assume, this is just me, one man's opinion, but I assume that the campaign rhetoric is not stopping because he's running for something else, right? I don't know if, like, the governor's going to jump into the presidential race and then Walters is going to try to position himself to be governor um, is like a special election. Oh, that's a good question, though. If the governor, let's just say the governor was elected to be president or got appointed to something else next year, is there a special election or does Pinnell become governor? I don't know. I would have to look that up. Yeah, I can't say for certain either. It's a good yeah, question. I'd have to I'd have to look that up. Huh. But I mean, to your point, like, is he running for something else? I mean, I mean maybe, but like the case, I mean, the, the question would be, what right like we just had a senatorial yeah i mean he's openly said he wants to run for governor yeah i mean i mean i guess that's the only thing but like that's four years away like and do you i mean i guess (laughs) i guess you don't have i mean when there's no way to fire the man i mean sure this is what happens sure um yeah i mean you may be you may be right maybe this is maybe this is just prepping for god does he want to be ron desantis although he doesn't seem nearly as competent as ron desantis so that's Something hopeful. Let's. <laughs> You're right. He takes a lot of pages from his playbook, but doesn't execute them in yeah. quite right. as a savvy way. He's not, he's not quite the politician. What's really sad is I've heard from colleagues of his and former students who said he used to not be like this back when he was in school. And yeah, right. like I've, like I've heard that former students of his are like, who is this? Yeah, like that he's like a different person. Getting around the state administration may have uh, influenced him for the worst. Well, and just, yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of voices in his ear that are making contributions to campaigns, and he's, I'm afraid he's a puppet. That's what, I mean, my fear is he's a puppet. I mean, but or he's even, trying to hide something. Even, even for, all the, for all of the things that he says that I think are ridiculous, and for all of the things that I disagree with him about, his rhetoric surpasses even the governor's, oh, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like, he's the only, he's the only one who really talks like this. I yeah. mean, even Senator 
even Senator Mullins, God, that hurts. Um, even Senator Mullins doesn't like, you know, again, Mark Wayne Mullen is somebody that I would be extr- like, we, we would, we would probably not agree about anything, but I think at this point he is like, he's a serious politician. Like he's a serious person. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, a great example would be, I mean, again, if I ever had coffee with Jim Inhofe, we would argue about the, like the literally everything, but you cannot say that he was not like a serious, right. A, ser- a serious person. Right. Superintendent Walters. I, I, I can't, I can't take him seriously. And that is scary to say about someone who has as much influence over the education of Oklahoma's children as he does. Well, I think by the end of this session, he's going to have dramatically less influence over it. I'll drink to that. If the uh, let's toast to the Republicans on one, yeah, you know, I'm empty. But... <laughs> well, I can't. Yeah, you can't cheers with an empty glass. Bad I luck. can't. Bad luck. Well, um, um, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, Representative Dollins, thanks for being here. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Anytime. Come back anytime. We'll we'll be here. Now we have an actual location that's not like roaming around the streets doing videos in our car. We can uh, we can invite guests. We can have an audience even. Do you think he would come? No. I don't want to do it here. I don't want to interview here. I will do the interview in his car. That's my that's my only thing. If he wants to do it, let's do it on his terms. <laughs> he can drive. We'll we'll the two of us with our heads in the middle. Can I suggest something? <laughs> yeah. Buckle yes. up. Yes, yes, oh, we all it. need to buckle up. That's it. That should be the next whoever's running for governor next on the Democratic yeah. ticket campaign slogan. Buckle, buckle up. up. Buckle up. That's, that's amazing. Fair enough. I love it. Listeners, uh, buckle up. Uh, don't forget to vote. March 7th is the special election for recreational marijuana. It is on the ballot. All kinds of good things. I'm going to try to have someone from the campaign on next week, I think. Uh, An update from Michelle Tilley or Ryan Kiesel or somebody. Uh, But please, early voting starts next week. The election's on Tuesday, March 7th. Please vote. Um, And because decisions are made by those who show up. Thanks a lot. Where was I? Where, oh, when? when? It was 2012 to 2014. Okay. So, um, so you did it in Whistler. You did? Okay. So you've been on that run? Yep. Calgary too. So I haven't, but did you know <laughs> you can? So you can go to, <laughs> yeah. you can go to Whistler Sliding Center and for oh, a yeah. relatively modest fee, they sit you in with a professional driver mm-hmm. and you can freaking ride a bobsled. Yeah. Down the thing. I and it looks like the baddest shit that you could ever do. You didn't tell me that before we went. Well, that's because it's closed in the summer. Wow. So you can only do it. And I was super pissed because last time we were there, we left on the 13th and they opened Whistler Sliding Center to the public on the 15th. Yeah. From like the 15th of December to like the 15th of March. And I was so pissed because we missed it by two days. Well, it sounds like and I was going to I was going to bobsled and Ashley was convinced that I was going to die. Mm-hmm. The passenger rides are available in Park City in the summertime, but they put you on a bobsled with wheels that you can go down. But that'd be like way slower, right? It's like a soapbox race. A little bit slower, but it's either that or nothing. I mean, sure. And then sure. also, like the passenger rides I'm used to, they are, they're outfitted with cushions and roll bars and all that sure. stuff. So you kind of get to go down in style, right? And, and Which, luxury, comfort. I mean, that's that. <laughs> Which is the opposite of the real deal. I mean, I would, I would imagine. <laughs> I would imagine. I think she felt better when I was like, no, like they they have a professional driver. Like you, they don't they don't just put you in a bobsled and be like, have at it, yeah. like. Uh, but no, you very much are a, a crash dummy when you first begin, because sure. typically when you're a rookie, you're going to jump in a bobsleigh with a pilot rookie as well. And oh, that so, seems terrifying. Yeah, you can expect to crash a lot, which is why they recruit football players to come out for the team. Because the actual <laughs> like perfect athlete to push a bobsleigh would be a 100-meter like collegiate sure. sprinter. Right. But, of course, they grew up in a sport where they never got touched. Right, right. right. Usain Bolt has more sense than that. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. They'll, they'll die halfway down. And, like... yeah, um, thanks to CTE and brain damage, we crash, and then we forget about it and do it again. Okay. <laughs> and that's... Pilot is the apropos term, not driver. Yeah, it's right. Okay. The, the pilot and then uh, the brakeman okay. are the people in the back. Right. And then second and third guy were women would be the pushers. Right. You're there to, like, get it going. That's the most important start is at the top. For every hundredth of a second at the top on your push equates to a tenth of a second at the bottom. 
and in a sport that comes down to the length of an eyelash, yeah, you want to be as fast. You want to push that sled as fast as possible. Um, and then when everyone jumps in, you want it to be as heavy as possible. That's part of the strategy. Because when you get to the end, sure. you jump on a giant scale and you can't be over a maximum weight. So typically, like, you want to be course, right at the maximum Team weight. one, USA, German, Russians, you've got these giant guys who are pushing this bobsleigh and then they jump in and they're right at that maximum limit can you like urinate on the way down to lose some of that weight yes i was in a a race one time when they actually had a ballast tank in the front of their sled and on the way down it was slowly leaking water so at the end it would be gone but they were getting that extra weight pulling them down faster gravity sport is that legal no they were caught okay i was like isn't isn't that why john candy got thrown out in cool runnings doing right right yeah. he was, because he weighted his sled i was like i don't know much about bobsled that's right but and, and then there was a point too okay here's another term you'll like you know the blades yeah, yeah. on it those are those are called runners and they're made of surgical steel and of course those you're on an ice track so there was a point where there was these little mini torches that people were walking by and heating up the runners before they would put them into the ice to make it slide just yeah. like melt like butter Man. And so it got to the point where they had these thermometers and they would have one runner just hanging from a wire that they would test. And then they would go around and touch each of the four and you runners on the slide. And yeah, and you couldn't be within a deviation. Uh, you couldn't be too far off from the test runner or you'd be disqualified. I've seen it all. I've seen people who take steroids and show up looking like Dr. Evil. Right. They shave off all their hair, eyebrows, everything. I and they're mean, like, me? Guilty? No. I mean, <laughs> who knew that bobsleigh was such a dirty sport, apparently? Well, any Olympic sport, I mean, any high com- highly competitive sport, there, people are going to try to get the advantage. It's kind of like in politics, you know? You try to get every little advantage you can within the rules, but uh, sometimes, unfortunately, people push those boundaries. And I'm happy that we have uh, a, a you know sanctions and we have a committee to help bust down on people who are trying to cheat. I'm going to add all this at the end of the episode, like yeah. after the credits, be like, stay tuned for five minutes of Mickey Dolan's educating Scott and Andy about bobsledding. Well, if we're going to do that, best bobsledding story. Oh, let me think about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've got some good ones. Uh, I would say probably the most memorable, well, because... The only, the very first bobsled track and the only natural one in the entire world is in St. Moritz, Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. And it's completely 100% natural, carved out of ice. It's over a mile and a half long. So you start off at the top of the mountain in one town and you end up in another. So but what's so cool awesome. about that is when you're going down, you're going through a forest and you can hear the birds chirping. It's, it's eerily quiet if you have a really good driver. But on every other track in the world that's made of steel and it's refrigerated, so there is ice, but it sounds like one of those old wooden roller coasters. Sure. It's clunky. Of course, the turns are higher, and it's you can't hear anything. It's like it's a death trap. You know, there's some really cool videos on YouTube now that are first person perspective POV of going down one, and it's it's terrifying. And but to be in it in like in real life, I, I would say. My third time down the track, I realized I hadn't even opened my eyes the previous two times because <laughs> I, was, I was so terrified. And the position I set was second right behind the driver. So we would say back set, front set, ready. And we all hit at the same time. And the driver would push about 10 meters and then jump in. I'd go about five more meters and jump in. Third and fourth guys would jump in. And then once everyone was in, I would, I would tuck myself down into a little cannonball. Right. My feet would go underneath the driver's the pilot's seat, and then the third and fourth guys' legs would wrap around each other. So by nature, I was about six inches taller than everyone else, which is how you get the name kickstand. Sure. when you flip (laughs) over, you're six inches higher than everyone else. And then, of course, the driver tucks himself into the cowling in front of the sled, which is completely hollow. Uh And the only thing in there are, you know, it's steered with two D-rings, metal rings connected to ropes that, that ever so slightly move the runners left or right, and that's how you can steer. And you crash if you exit as soon if you exit too late off of a turn, and you know you you could be twenty feet up pulling five Gs and not turn get off the turn fast enough, and it will throw you off the turn <laughs> onto your head. And when you're sliding, of course, onto your head. <laughs> yeah, a kickstand. I took that. That was my sacrifice. And then you go on your head sliding for about half a mile until gravity slows you down. Yeah. Or a track worker sacrifices themselves and jumps out in front and tries to stop you. What does it say about me that that sounds awesome? <laughs> well, you can do it. I mean, I hope, I hope 
that you don't crash. I, I, I wouldn't wish crashing on anyone, but sure. I would definitely recommend the experience if you have the opportunity. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds awesome. Can, can, can you take a public ride on the track in St. Moritz? Like, do they? Do That's that? a good question. I don't know about that. Um, you'd have to do it during the winter time because right. it's a natural track. I was going to say one of the cool things I like about the Olympics is there's no prerequisite in the NFL. You got to play college football. Usually, right. in NBA nowadays, you got to go at least play one year of college basketball. The great thing about the Olympics, it's truly an amateur sport. You can go straight into it like I did. And when I talk to kids about running for office, I tell them it's the same way. You don't have to have come up in a political dynasty or have all these connections with the party. You can jump into it and make a difference if you have a good message and a good plan to knock doors for those who vote. Uh, they're very similar in that way. And there you have, go, Scott. That's, that's the ending right there. I mean, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. That was good. That was good. All right, let's hit some music, and then we'll actually talk about politics. I, I can talk about Winter Olympics for another I mean, 45 yes. minutes. It's, it's clearly the best Olympics. All right. Um... 